Hi, you're listening to Spotlight Aisha, a podcast that shines a light on ideas that matter. Hello and welcome to the sixth and last episode of Spotlight Aisha Season 2. I'm your host today, Audrey Jarton from Luxembourg, together with my colleague from Antwerp, Lars Reitschelders. Good morning, Lars. Good morning, Audrey, and welcome everyone to Spotlight Aija. Audrey and I are two of the academic coordinators of the upcoming 60th International Young Laureus Congress in Singapore this August. In this episode of Spotlight Aija, we will delve into one of the two academic tracks of our next Aija Congress, and we will discover more on doing business in Asia, and more specifically, Singapore. Thanks to long-term planning that values meritocracy, private enterprise, and economic utility, Singapore has emerged as a future-oriented economic powerhouse. It has the third highest per capita income in the world and traditionally appears in the higher regions of the World Competitiveness Ranking of the International Institute for Management Development, IMD, even topping the chart in 2020 and 2019. So it's definitely worth taking a closer look into some of the business and legal ingredients that create this recipe for success. Exactly, Lars. Indeed, its reputation as Asia's preeminent arbitration center, banking hub, export-oriented manufacturer and cultural touchstone invites Asia members, and not only, to gather and ponder what the future holds in this post-COVID reality. As the topic is super interesting, we will unfold the conversation in two parts with our speakers. First, we will have an exploration of insight into the laws of doing business in Singapore. And later, we will discover more about what the legal business ecosystem in Singapore looks like. On that note, let's welcome today's first guest on Spotlight Aija, Paul Tan. Paul Tan is a commercial litigation and international arbitration specialist in commercial as well as in investor state matters. His practice focuses on managing disputes across Southeast Asia with deep experience advising on complex issues of public and private international law. Paul advises a wide range of clients, including leading multinational organizations, global insurers, financial institutions and Asian governments. Paul also heads the Formal Law Alliance litigation practice for Southeast Asia at Clifford Chance. Thank you very much for joining us, Paul. Well, thank you, Lars. Thank you, Audrey, for inviting me on this program. I look forward to sharing my views with you and with all our listeners. Paul, thank you for joining us. As you know, AEGIA is coming to Singapore for its annual congress this year, and many colleagues will join us from all over the world. So my first question for you would be, what makes Singapore such a business-friendly and innovative hub in Asia, also from a legal standpoint? Well, thanks very much for the question. So this has been dubbed the Asian century, and this is in large part due to the economic growth that we have seen in the region. And notwithstanding the last couple of years and the economic headwinds that we have suffered as a result of the pandemic, Still, the economic growth for this part of the world is estimated to grow faster than the Americas and in Europe. Southeast Asia itself, as an economic bloc, is one of the fastest growing regions of the world. And by some estimates, if ASEAN were a single country, it would be the seventh largest economy in the world. And by 2050, some estimate this to be 
the fourth largest economic bloc in the world. Singapore's success is very much a reflection of the wider economic success of Asia. Singapore in particular has been able to capture this economic growth thanks to a number of reasons. In addition to its geographical advantage, sitting as it were at the centre of Asia, Singapore is able to offer four other factors. First, Singapore offers a stable framework, a stable framework of laws, of a system of government that works, of an independent and commercially minded judiciary, all of which are key to instilling confidence in businesses and in the commercial world. Next, we are neutral. We are not seen to be aligned with any particular country or any particular power, as a result of which we are seen as a neutral and fair venue for dispute resolution. Third, we are English-speaking. Our business language is English, our courts operate in English, and our judgments are available in the English language. That makes us accessible to a large majority of the commercial world. Last, and perhaps most importantly, Singapore does not rest on its laurels. It continues to innovate and continues to project what might be called soft power. The success of the Singapore International Arbitration Centre is a paradigm example of how a joint effort between government, judiciary and the private bar has catapulted Singapore to one of the leading jurisdictions for arbitration alongside London and Paris. And we continue to innovate with the establishment of the Singapore International Commercial Court, the Singapore International Mediation Centre. We have set up the Asian Business Legal Institute to try and harmonise the commercial laws in this part of the world. We continue to build networks of bilateral and multilateral investment in free trade agreements. We help to negotiate and broker the Singapore Convention on Mediated Settlements. Through these institutions and networks, Singapore continues to remain relevant to the commercial world. Thank you, Paul, for explaining these base elements of success of Singapore and the greater Asian region to our listeners. It definitely makes it more comprehensible to understand the importance of the region on a global level too. In a way, of course, it's not really that surprising either when you know that it houses almost half of the world's population. Interesting points you mentioned are also Singapore's neutrality, innovation and use of so-called soft power. From a European perspective, I must say there seems to be quite some resemblance with Switzerland. Now, you are a litigation and arbitration lawyer. Do you think that this position of Singapore in the region is an important success factor for the development of the legal industry in Singapore as well? Yes, absolutely. In fact, many years ago, Singapore said that it wanted to be the Switzerland of Asia. And we can look at this in three ways. At a macro level, because of our neutrality and our credibility, we are able to build institutions that are respected and used by parties all over the world. That includes an arbitration institution, the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, but also a court system with the setting up of the Singapore International Commercial Court, which is intended to help resolve disputes between parties from different countries using the court system. 
Second, we are able to lead the negotiation of international treaties and agreements and therefore be used as a hub for investments in this part of the world. And that's because businesses know that if they incorporate themselves through Singapore, for example, they are able to take advantage of a huge network of international bilateral treaties or free trade agreements, which they might not otherwise have available to them. Third, at a more micro level, our lawyers are also seen as trustworthy advisors for clients with multinational and cross-border issues or disputes. Clients know that lawyers here are incorruptible, that we are objective, that we believe in the rule of law, and that we are able to give them the best guidance that they can get throughout the region and the world. That's a really interesting perspective, Paul. A stable and efficient legal framework is indeed key for businesses and economy to flourish. The developments on ESG also align very well with what we see in Europe and in the US, where companies must comply with increasing obligations related to ESG. They must also do their best to meet requirements to have their businesses qualify as sustainable and to be noticed by investors on the market. Is this a trend you also see in increasing in Singapore in the next year and decades? And with the Singaporean approach to the laws of business, I'm also curious to know what impact this has on the business of law. How legal professionals are having to deliver value-added services to their corporate clients. So on ESG in particular, this is another example where Singapore has been leading the way in this part of the world. The Singapore Stock Exchange and the Monetary Authority of Singapore have been increasingly rolling out guidelines and directives on ESG disclosures, for example. There are directives now on the training of boards and directors on ESG issues, and many Singapore law firms are now getting ready to advise their clients accordingly. And this is how it has always been. This is because the law follows business, it supports business. And so where there are business opportunities for Singapore, you will find that the legal regime and the lawyers will follow suit. Another example is in the tech and intellectual property arena. And this is an area which the government has identified as one having huge commercial potential for Singapore and has developed a roadmap to encourage businesses to set up here. As a result, lawyers here have had to update themselves on emerging issues in tech and IP. Our legislation has been updated to allow for the fast-tracking of certain kinds of intellectual property disputes. Our International Arbitration Act has also been amended in order to confirm the arbitrability of intellectual property disputes. So these are all ways in which business and the emerging trends in business have affected the way in which the law and lawyers have been training themselves and have been progressing in these areas. Which then leads to your second question in relation to how business has had an impact on lawyers. And the fact is that the problems 
that clients face nowadays are multifaceted. Uh, lawyers are expected to be familiar with accounting, to be familiar with technology, to be familiar with economics. And even a wider appreciation of business and politics is important. When dealing with high-level disputes with foreign governments or on behalf of foreign governments in foreign investment claims, for example, we need to understand how governments think. We need to understand why they have legislated or acted in a certain way. Clients, whether at a governmental level or at a business corporate level, don't simply want a textbook recitation of what they cannot do as a matter of law and theory, but they want to know what they can do as a matter of practice. Speaking from the perspective of a disputes lawyer, we are trained to fight, to litigate, to arbitrate. But the reality is that clients want us to solve their problems and sometimes to even preempt those problems. And so increasingly what I find is that disputes lawyers are being brought into the picture far earlier than what we might have been used to. And all of these are signs of how we as lawyers have to develop ourselves and have to educate ourselves so that we are able to have a 360 view of the client's issues and, and challenges, a 360 view of where the problems are and, or where they might come out, and then to provide solutions to them that are implementable, that are commercial, that are efficient and cost-effective. Thank you so much, Paul. The things you mentioned are definitely very helpful to have a better understanding of how to develop business in Asia for legal professionals. I absolutely agree with you that we will advise our clients better when we truly understand the different aspects of their business. It might even lead to more diversified services, I think, which we will provide in the future complementing our legal core business. Now, let's build on those thoughts with our next speaker, Rama Tiwari. Rama is Chief Executive at Singapore Academy of Law since 2020. He studied law at Queen Mary University of London and also holds a master's degree in information technology. He was admitted as an advocate and solicitor of Singapore Supreme Court in 1999, after which he joined a private practice specializing in IT and intellectual property matters. Mr. Tawari brings with him more than 20 years of experience in the private sector, where he held senior positions as vice president in a bank, and as a global sales lead and legal counsel for a U.S. technology company. Rama joined SAL in July 2019 as its chief digital officer and was tasked to lead its digital transformation. He is also the executive director of SAL Ventures, a subsidiary responsible for the development of a legal tech ecosystem in Singapore. With all these different experiences, Rama Tiwari is definitely an excellent speaker to tell us more about the business of law in Asia. Thank you very much, Rama, for being with us today as well. Thank you, Lars. Uh, good morning, Audrey and Lars, and thank you for having me today. Thank you, Rama, for being with us and helping us to discover the legal business ecosystem in Asia. From your experience, what does it mean, and also what does it take, to truly be a trusted legal advisor? Interesting question, Audrey. Um, my own journey was such that I started, as you, you heard Lars, uh, working in um, private practice. Uh, there, of course, we learn and hone our technical skills uh, of lawyering, but also client management. But 
as I moved uh, in-house, really that, that basically uh, started giving me different skill sets to understand the business. And that's actually how I started structuring deals for my clients, stakeholders, uh, which was the internal customers or the sales units that eventually made me want to move into sales. So, so starting there, I think the key is to understand how to manage the legal risk for your client. This is regardless of whether you are in legal practice or in-house. And I think there are three things that will lead you to or could lead someone to do that. I think first is understanding the business, right? You really need to have an understanding of the challenges and opportunities of the business environment, whether it's a client or your own organization. The second part is really identifying and applying the legal issues. The second part is where most of us are very comfortable with. We are very comfortable talking legalese, applying legal issues, and so on and so forth, but we need to apply it to the business context and the business problem, right? Um, and that leads to the third uh, portion about being able to communicate clearly and simply in a non-technical manner. Usually, I see uh, people struggle with that last one because you understand the business, you are very deep in the law, but if you're unable to communicate it clearly and simply in a non-technical manner, a lot of things fail. So really to me, it's these three things that are really important for you, uh, for anyone to really be a good legal business partner. It's always great, Rama, to learn from such valuable personal and professional experiences. Thank you for sharing those with us. Is it in your opinion correct to say that in a business environment, a trusted legal advisor needs to understand his or her role within the decision-making process of the client very well, next to other departments like finance, sales, R&D, HR, almost like a true business partner of the company? Yes, but I think you also need to, when you talk about decision-making, uh, need to go a bit further I mean, there are formalized decision-making structures in most organizations, but the key is actually to understand the organizational culture as well as sometimes even the business or support unit culture, even within the geography it's in, because the culture could be difficult, different because of the geography it's in as well. And understanding the culture is going to let you understand what I will call the informal decision-making structure. So for me, the formal is what's documented, the processes that need to happen, the approvals that need to be garnered. But to be a trusted legal business partner, it's really about transcending the formal to the informal. Because it's at the informal where ideas are born where discussions are had, where problems before they become problems are nipped in the bud. So the key is actually to get to that stage of being in the informal uh, decision-making process to really know that you're in the trusted field. Now, sometimes that could take a bit of time. Uh, it's just about slowly figuring out the 
culture, the organization, the way they operate. Um, in some places, it's the canteen or the, the cafeteria or the restaurant where some decisions are actually key decisions are made. And you just need to be at that table before that problem really happens. Because often enough, they don't think of the legal consequences. They're just, that's a great idea for the business. Rama, from what you tell us and with all the experiences you have from working with companies and organizations in the US, Europe and Asia, it makes me kind of wonder, how have you learned to manage these cultural differences? I can imagine that the professional habits must have been very different everywhere, no? Yes, Lars, it is very different. In fact, uh, when I was working in the US company, the European business side was very European uh, and it was run out of Germany. Um, and then there was an office out in uh, the UK as well, in Farnborough. So it's, it's, it, it was, I would say, a truly global company. Um, and, and SAL is actually a bit different. We are not commercial at all, actually. We are a quasi-statutory body. Um, so it's another different entity. So this is what I used to tell um, even salespeople uh, that, you know, you were gifted with two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. So the key is to actually listen meet people, ask questions, and listen, get to know them. Uh, get to know the environment, get to know what happens. Because I will tell you, hand on heart, every office sometimes has a different culture. Um, even though you may be part of the one big company and the whole company gets together once in a while, in a year, uh, in some location when flying was still a thing. But uh, it's really something else. Um, going into that particular uh, business or support unit or R&D unit in that location, whether it's in Warsaw or whether it's in Tokyo uh, or in um, Austin um, in Texas. So it is slightly different. Uh, and the key is to really be able to listen ask questions, get to know people, get to know how things <clears throat> work, how things operate. I think it's very important personally to always share a meal. That'll be my two cents is always try and have lunch. Uh, if dinner is even better if you can, if the culture allows it, uh, but definitely meet them for a meal, meet them where they are, meet them where they work. And I think that's really important. Well, thank you very much, Rama. Uh, building up on, I, I like really, really like your image of two ears and, and a mouth. And building up on that, um, I, I understood that Singapore is taking some quite initiative on its own to transform the legal function of a trusted advisor and transcend it into informal business partner. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, Audrey. Well, SEL's mission is really about enabling trusted, future-ready legal professionals. We are trying to do this in a number of dimensions. Even though we're an academy of law, I mean, technology and innovation leadership is something we are quite co concerned about and working towards. Because I think 
everyone knows technology is pervasive um, in the world today in the digital economy. And we are building on technology and innovation leadership by creating a legal knowledge management platform for the legal professionals. Um, it's called lawnet.com. The brand and the name has been around for some time in, uh, in Singapore, but it has had different evolution. And this evolution is really a legal knowledge management platform. In there, we will try to hub all the services. Today, if you go there, you will see Academy Library, where all the books that we publish, we are the leading legal publisher of uh, legal textbooks, um, journals in Singapore. We have started with our books, and the, the Academy Library is the digital collection of our books that any member can subscribe to. They can go into a book, they can search for legal concepts because we use you know, Google-like uh, search techniques uh, and find the concepts so they can read about it. We also have right now a personal injury damages estimator that you can go in and calculate uh, what could be the damages linked to case law so that you can get your arguments ready for court or your opponent. And in the near future, all this will be linked to case laws uh, and case law search uh, and integration with a book. So you can seamlessly do research with your books to case law and back. So that's technology and innovation leadership. We are also looking at legal thought leadership. And on this uh, legal knowledge management platform, we are building out Asian legal content, secondary materials initially, because we know that there needs to be a trusted source of Asian insights and Asian legal content so that many people are able to research it and be able to operate and do business in Asia. Along with that, again, given that we're an academy, it's really actionable learning and professional development. We have built out the lifted capability framework and we are partnering with LinkedIn Learning where that capability framework is slowly being built out uh, along with courses from LinkedIn or from SAL or from other providers being added to that capability framework so that it becomes actionable, it becomes usable for people uh, to learn as they go when they have the time to do so. And these initiatives, uh, Audrey, are not just for Singapore or Singapore-centric. Really, once you have these technologies out there, once you have a legal knowledge management platform, once you are partnering your capability framework with LinkedIn, which is a global player, it can be used beyond Singapore. Well, thank you so much, Rama. This is really, really insightful. I must say that the way that Singapore is supporting um, legal professionals in developing their business and practice, not only by using tools and share legal content, but also building on professional development with several platforms such as LinkedIn, as you, as you just say, is really different that we are used to in many firms that are represented in Asia, in a good way, of course. I'm sure it would make the listener of this episode of Spotlight Asia even more interested to join us at the annual Congress this year. Absolutely, Audrey. 
And with everything we learned from Paul Tan and Rama Tiwari today about the laws of business and the business of law in Asia, it really is not easy to summarize the most important takeaways. But let's give it a shot anyway. First, Paul once again showed us that Asia is definitely on the rise economically, which will present many opportunities for businesses and therefore also for legal professionals. Second, if we want to be successful in the legal industry, we will need to build new capabilities that go beyond the technical legal expertise we all have. To make us truly understand the challenges and opportunities of the business context of our clients, the culture they are part of, and very important, their informal decision-making processes. The third one is as simple and valuable as it is hard to put in practice. As Rama pointed out that we need to listen more to our clients instead of talking like we lawyers like doing so much. To understand how to manage the legal risks they are facing and to communicate clearly and simply in a non-technical manner to solve the issues. All these and many more topics we will discuss at our 60th annual congress in Singapore this August. In the heads up, SAL and AIJA will also be collaborating on initiatives like the Asia-Europe Business and Law Summit in May and the Tech Law Fest in July. We all invite you to get involved in this community of East meets West. Rama, I really loved your call to action earlier today that we should go out and have a meal as much as we can. I'm quite sure that our listeners can relate to that very much. Do you both have any other recommendations for actions you think we can take to be better advisors or any books that are worth reading? I would say that Asia is home to huge economic potential and therefore immense potential and opportunity in the legal space. And I will call on law firms and lawyers and those supporting the legal industry to be bold and creative in seizing opportunities to preempt, to solve, and to resolve the legal issues of clients and businesses in ways that are commercial and effective. Rather than uh, saddling your your listeners with a, a book, I, I think if you want to get an introduction to what's going on in Asia, there is a free news source, uh, channelnewsasia.com. It's actually a Singapore-based news source. Um, that's free, and if you just go to the Asian section, it, it actually gives you a very good roundup of what's going on that day in the, in, in the region. When I was doing regional business, it was actually a very good starting point before you branch out to the individual English newspapers in the region. And... Uh, the other one actually is uh, Nikkei Asia, N-I-K-K-E-I Asia. I, I think that one, there's a subscription, uh, but there's some free amounts you can see, but I think that give, provides uh, um, really interesting insights. And also, if you want to know more about the Singapore legal scene, uh, there's something called Singapore Law Watch. Just Google it, you'll get there. And uh, that is updated by Singapore Academy of Law every day. Uh, and he has a news feed both on the legal going-ons, the business and legal going-ons uh, in Singapore as well. So I would suggest those three sources uh, as a start. With regards to a call to action, Lars, I would say always be learning 
adapting and innovating to be the best legal business partner for your client organization. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Paul Tan and Rama Tiwari. If you would like to hear more, subscribe, rate, and review Spotlight Asia on your favorite podcast platform. We hope you enjoyed this second season of Spotlight Asia. And of course, you can meet Lars and I at our Asia Annual Congress in Singapore from the 22nd to the 27th August this year. See you for a new Spotlight Asia season soon. All episodes will be available on various podcast streaming platforms and on the AGIA website. Interviews with experts on innovation, legal tech, businesses, creativity, and other important topics for the legal profession, but also highlights from AGIA events. Tune in every month for something new. You have listened to Spotlight Asia a podcast produced by Aisha for young lawyers across the globe. Don't miss the next episode.